Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must eat from any, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the garden, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and all wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Trinity. I didn't hear your response. Yeah, I know. It's always, it's always hard to know whether you should respond to a video, right? Do you say anything? Do you respond? Well, just pretend like I'm there, but, uh, but I'm not, obviously, here in person. And that's where I probably should start this morning is apologizing that uh, Beth and I are not with you in person this Sunday um, and that you have to watch this sermon on video instead today. Uh, we got a call on Tuesday of this week, got word that a good friend of ours in Virginia Beach, uh, Rhonda Singer, had passed away. She's the wife of Randy Singer, who was the co-pastor with me at our church in Virginia Beach before we came here to Georgia. Trinity Church, by the way, same name. And uh, 
so we, we just really wanted to be there. The, the services are on the weekend, and so we wanted to be there, participate in that this weekend. So uh, we're recording this message on Wednesday in advance of Sunday, uh, since Beth and I will be on the road this weekend to Virginia Beach. And I think this is probably the, the earliest I've ever had a message ready, four days in advance of the Sunday. Um, and hopefully it's finished I, by the time we're done here. Maybe you'll know if it was actually finished or not. But uh, my thanks to Charles and Jason and Nick and uh, everybody for kind of filling in and, and filling the gaps for me this weekend. And for Dana for stepping in for Allison, who is also out of town this weekend. Uh, thanks for leading our worship time. And let me just say before we pray and go into God's Word this morning, um, Jason mentioned the uh, uh, baptism coming up at the end of this month. Just, I want to say to you, if you've never been baptized, if you've never made your faith public in that way, it's just a beautiful demonstration that God's given us, a command He's given us as a way to make our faith public. So please talk to me or Pastor Jason, one of us. We would love to include you in that baptism service on that Sunday, the 28th of March. So would you bow your heads with me and let's pray as we go to God's Word. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your Word. And even though this is not in person and in time, your word, thankfully, is so personal and so timeless that it still carries all of its power. And Lord, that's what we depend on anyhow. It's the power of your living word, your divine revelation to us of yourself. And that's what makes the difference in our lives and in our world. And so thank you that we have that to lean on and listen to and learn from today. And uh, so, Lord, I'm asking as we go into your word that you would help me, give me your words to accurately communicate and explain and, and talk through this passage for us. And then, Lord, may your spirit be at work, not only in my speaking of it, but in everyone's hearing of this word. Lord, you work at, at both ends of this communication line. And so we ask for that this morning and pray that you would by your spirit and through your word, uh, draw us to yourself, remind us of who you are, remind us of what you've done for us, and remind us of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And we will give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, her name was Barbara. She was our neighbor when we lived on Missionary Hill at Tacoa Falls College. During our time there, a lot of our time, we lived on this hill, this neighborhood kind of off the side of the campus. And both of our yards backed up to National Forest area. And so there were all, we always knew there were lots of critters out there. Sometimes we could hear them. Occasionally we could see them. But on this one particular day, our neighbor Barbara found a small cotton uh, copperhead snake on her back porch, on her patio. And you need to know about Barbara. She She's a pretty fearless woman, she, instead of screaming and running to the house, which is probably what she should have done when she saw that snake, instead she took her broom that she'd been using to sweep, she put it down on top of the snake, and she reached down to grab its tail with the intent of, of flinging it into the woods. I guess saving its life, but getting it off the patio. Well, Unfortunately, as she reached down, that snake either put his head through or under the, the broom or around the broom, something had bit her hand as she grabbed its tail. 
And even though it was a copperhead, thankfully, it was a baby copperhead. Its venom was a lot less, I guess, because it was younger, and so it didn't kill her. But she was in the hospital for a couple of days with that snake bite, and she was not able to use her hand for painting and playing piano, the things that she did, for a number of months. That's how bad that venom was of that snake. And my guess is that in telling that story, that most of us probably would not do what she did. And most of us would never try to grab a poisonous snake by its tail, but if we knew it was poisonous. Most of us have this natural kind of warranted fear of snakes. And could that be that that antagonism that's between snakes and human beings goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden? Could it be that this is a result of the curse? Well, today we're going to begin a series called The Signs of the Passion. And perhaps you've noticed our rather unusual graphic for this series. Maybe you wondered about these animals on the signs and what that has to do with the passion of Christ. Well, these four Sundays in March, we're going to investigate four prophetic passages in the Old Testament that point us to the passion of of Jesus Christ. And our goal in doing this is to see how God's plan to redeem his creation was fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the series, these four weeks, is going to lead us right to Easter Sunday, which is that very first Sunday of April, on April the 4th. Today our passage takes us to the very beginning, back to the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, or your electronic device, your phone, go to Genesis chapter 3. You heard a good part of this chapter read already this morning. Today our title is The Serpent Slayer, obviously referring to Jesus. And as you were listening to this passage, if you didn't know this was in the Bible and you just heard this, I mean, you might actually think you were listening to fantasy, right? It's, It's an extraordinary story. But it's true. The first man and woman, the forbidden fruit, a talking snake, the first sin, it's all right there. God created Adam and Eve as the perfect human beings, but in creating them, he also gave them the right to choose him or to choose God's enemy. He gave them the choice between good and evil. He gave them the choice between obedience and disobedience. He gave them the choice between life and death. And they chose to believe Satan rather than to believe God, as you heard in the passage when it was read. And that choice brought sin and death to them, to all of creation, and to all of us. But God already had a plan to rescue his creation. And that's going to be our focus this morning because we get the first glimpses of that plan. They're revealed right here in this passage. Even as God is pronouncing judgment for sin, there are these glimpses of salvation. Notice the words to the serpent in verse 14. We'll just pick up the passage right there. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, what we know is that Satan took on this form, this form of the serpent, in order to tempt Adam and Eve. What we don't know is what the serpent might have looked like before this curse comes on him. 
I mean, did the serpent walk or fly or crawl? We don't really know. The, the Bible doesn't tell us. It does seem strange, though, doesn't it, that God would curse the serpent, the animal itself, just because Satan took on that form for this temptation. I mean, I think what's going on here most likely is that God pronounced this curse so that the serpent, the snake, would forever be this symbol of God's judgment on Satan. And crawling on the belly, that's part of this curse in verse 14. It indicates humiliation. Eating dust, that's part of the curse. That indicates death. So whenever you see a snake, hopefully you don't see them real often, but whenever you see one, it should remind you of God's judgment on his enemy, Satan. A judgment of humiliation and death. Now, how do we know that this was Satan? I mean, the text doesn't specifically say so right here, does it? So you go to the end of God's book, you go to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there the snake, the serpent, is clearly identified. You'll see the verse on the screen, and I'll read it to you here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Uh, This is fascinating to me. The serpent shows up as a dragon in Revelation. You kind of see the parallels there. But he's identified as Satan, as the devil, very clearly, very specifically in this passage. And, And there's so much we could get into here in Genesis 3. But today our focus is on verse 15, specifically now on verse 15. And that verse, by the way, is known by theologians as the proto-evangelism, which means the first announcement of the gospel. And amazingly, it comes right here on the heels of the first sin, the first gospel announcement right after the first sin. And gospel, of course, means good news. So where do we see good news in this strange verse that's pronouncing a curse? Well, it's here. Let's break it into two parts this morning. Here's the first part and our first point for today. God pronounced the conflict between humanity and the forces of evil. God pronounced this. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now, as God speaks this to the serpent, certainly there's more going on here than just a prediction that there's going to be bad blood between women of the world and snakes. Now, maybe that's true as well, but this goes so much deeper. In fact, when we read these words, I will put, when God says, I will put, we're hearing the authority of the very creator. It's like we're hearing those words from Genesis 1 where God says, let there be. Now, instead of creating, he's pronouncing this curse because of sin. And what he pronounces is enmity, his key word here. The word can also be translated hostility. It refers to an ongoing kind of hatred, a, a feud or a rivalry. And since God says it will extend to the serpent's offspring or seed and the woman's offspring or seed, this makes perfect sense. So, what is this generational conflict all about? Well, the word offspring, which can also be translated seed, 
is a collective noun, meaning it, it refers to a group. And so it's more than just Eve's child or her, even her children. It refers to humankind as a whole. Eve, as Genesis presents her, is known as the mother of all the living. And so her, her offspring, her seed, refers to humankind. But what about the serpent's offspring? That seems really strange. What is that? Here it seems to be a reference to those who choose to follow Satan rather than God. Remember what Jesus said uh, to those who were opposing him in John chapter 8 verse 44. The people who were around him who did not believe in him. He says these words, John 8 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. These are the serpent's offspring. All who reject God's truth, all who reject his son, that's the offspring of the serpent. So the offspring of the woman most likely then refers to those who choose God's way and follow God, God's son. The offspring of the serpent are those who follow Satan. And all that, that really helps us understand the nature of this curse, this first part of verse 15. Because Adam and Eve in the garden, in the first part of this chapter, we saw this. They chose to believe Satan and what he said rather than to believe God and what he said. And so as God speaks these words, he tells us that Satan would continue to exist. He would still be there. Humankind would continue on, would propagate but that there would be this ongoing conflict, this battle between the two throughout history. The forces of good against the forces of evil, the children of God against the children of the devil. That's what's set up for us here in Genesis 3.15. So what does that mean for us? Well, this answers why we have spiritual warfare in our world and in our lives. It's a result of the curse. It's the enmity of Genesis 3.15. It's why there's conflict. It's why there's war and division, division and, and prejudice and violence and suffering and death. It's all traced right back to here. And on a personal level, it's why you sometimes have conflict with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. It's why we have conflict in our lives. It's why our nation is divided. It's why there's conflict and spiritual struggle in our world. It's a result of the curse of sin. And the conflict is universal. And it's been for all time. You look back at all the great stories in the history of mankind, including the stories of superheroes, even to our day and age. So every superhero has an arch enemy, right? Think back to the stories, to the comic books. Superman has his Lex Luthor. Batman has the Joker. Sherlock Holmes has Professor Moriarty. Jean-Luc Picard has Q. And the Roadrunner even has Coyote. I mean, in every case, through all the great stories of human history, they're built on this premise, this conflict between good and evil. And it's all traced right back here to Genesis 3.15. But remember, God pronounced that this conflict 
would be, would be part of our experience. God said it would be. Even this enmity, therefore, has a purpose in God's plan. You know, that means that we can trust him. That we don't have to be thrown by this. God is not thrown by this. He is not confused by this. He understands this conflict between good and evil. And we can trust him as we live in the midst of it. So, what is God's plan then? How will God rescue his creation and defeat this arch enemy? Well, that comes in the second half of Genesis 3.15. But before we go there, just notice something. Rather than being spoken by God as a promise to mankind, which is kind of what we would expect, right? That God would make this promise, I'm going to fix all this, here's what I'm going to do, here's the plan. That's not how it comes. Instead, it's in the midst of this sentence that he's passing on on his enemy, on Satan. And that tells us that our redemption, or that redemption as a whole, is not just about us. It's not about our need and our salvation, not only about that, that it's actually more about God's sovereign rule and the rescue of his entire creation. That's the story of redemption. It's about God not about us. So here's the other part of this prophetic sign. Here's point number two for this morning. God pronounced the victory of the seed over the serpent. The victory of the seed over the serpent. Verse 15, read the whole verse this time again and read it to the end. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, notice how this verse moves from the collective use of offspring to now, in the second part of the verse, a more personal, a more singular kind of focus here. He will crush your head. So it's a he directed to a specific individual among the woman's seed. And you will strike his heel. So there's, this is now aimed at the serpent directly, not to the serpent's offspring to the serpent himself. The battle of the ages, the enduring conflict between good and evil would come down to a single battle. One particular descendant of the woman and the serpent himself. And we know that this then is a prophetic reference to Jesus and his battle against Satan. How do we know this? Well, you know, I think one of the most striking connection points comes from a vision of the Apostle John in Revelation 12. I want to read this passage, a little extended, nine verses or so. You'll see it on the screen. But I want you to notice how John describes this cosmic battle that's going on. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. A great sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, 
who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon against his, and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, there's a whole lot in that passage, but essentially this vision captures the whole conflict from Satan's rebellion in heaven and taking a third of the angels with him to his attempt to kill the child king, certainly a reference to Jesus, to his war with God's angels in the heavenlies, to his attempts to lead the world astray, all that he's doing in our world here and now. This, in Revelation 12, is the story of Satan versus the seed. It's the story of Genesis 3.15. There's also another unusual parallel that comes in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. Remember when the Israelites complained against God in the wilderness, as they often seem to do, and, and he sent venomous snakes as a punishment one of these times. And so these snakes are attacking, people are, are dying from these snake bites, and finally the people repent and they call out to God for help. And remember what God does, he tells Moses to make this bronze serpent, to put it on a pole and to hold it up in the middle of the Israelite camp. And, and that anybody who would look on that bronze serpent that had been lifted up on the pole would not die from the snake bite. Uh, just this extraordinary, unusual story. <clears throat> and centuries later, Jesus picks up on that very story from Numbers 21. And he applies that as a symbol of himself. <clears throat> Listen to John 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is speaking. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus would become the one lifted up on the cross to prevent death from the bite of the serpent, Satan. Of course, that brings us right back to Genesis 3.15. We see that this image we see in Genesis 3.15 shows back up in various points in the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation. Notice what God's words say in this passage again about the defeat of the serpent. The last part of 3.15, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God acknowledges right here in Genesis 3.15 that the crushing of the serpent would also result in injury to the seed. That God's victory over Satan would come at a price. And Genesis 3.15, of course, doesn't give us the details. It doesn't tell us what would happen, how it would happen. But we know, in retrospect, looking back, we can see that it refers to the suffering and the death that Jesus endured to pay the price for our sin, leading up to and on that cross. The book of Hebrews kind of spells this out for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Look at these verses. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Jesus, shared in their humanity 
so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus had to die to become the serpent slayer for us. That's what this attack on his heel would mean. Remember, God had said, he said to Adam and Eve from the very beginning that sin would result in death, and it did. As Jesus took the sins of the world on himself, he had to die. That's the penalty for sin. But the wonderful news is that when the serpent struck the heel of the sun, that it didn't end in death. Because three days later, Jesus came back to life. That's what we're going to celebrate at the beginning of April. Jesus' resurrection. So here it is. He paid for sin on the cross, and he defeated death in his resurrection. Praise the Lord. And in doing that, Jesus defeats Satan for us too. Here's the application. Here's what it means for us. <clears throat> Notice how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Again, we'll put this verse on the screen for you. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, I just have to think Paul was imagining Genesis 3.15. Maybe he just read Genesis 3.15 when he writes these words in his letter. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, he's saying to the Christians in Rome that they could anticipate that by God's help, they would stomp on the serpent because Jesus had already done so at the cross. And that's the glorious truth here for us too. Christ took the poisonous bite of the serpent on our behalf so that we could join him in crushing the serpent's head. That's what you sang about this morning. There is victory in Jesus, you sang. He is our defender who stomps the enemy beneath our feet. The God of angel armies is always by your side. Therefore, whom shall we fear? That's what you sang. We have nothing to fear. God has arranged for your rescue by sending his son to crush the head of Satan. And you have that victory in Jesus Christ. That means you can win over temptation in your life. It means you can overcome your fears. It means that you can do away with worry. It means that you can set aside anger and bitterness by God's grace. It means that you can harness the tongue, which none of us can do on our own. It means that you can lay aside pride. How do, how do we do all that? By remembering that God says we are overcomers in Christ. By trusting what the Bible says, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the enmity. That's the battle. But Jesus Christ is the victor in that battle. We do that by recalling that we are followers of the serpent slayer. Have you ever seen a venomoid? Do you know what that is, a venomoid? It's a venomous snake that's had its venom glands removed. Now, I don't know that this is done very often, but it, it can happen. They can 
do that to remove that venom to make that snake essentially harmless. Now, you might say, yeah, but I still wouldn't want to pick up that snake. I wouldn't touch that snake. I wouldn't go anywhere near it. But you could. That's the point. That snake might still bite you, and that might hurt, but it won't kill you. It can't harm you if there's no venom, if there's no poison. You would essentially have nothing to fear. Satan is a venomoid. God has removed his venom through what Jesus did on the cross for us. Yes, that means Satan can still attack us. He can still tempt us. He can still harm us. He can still hurt us. But if you are in Christ, the serpent slayer, Satan cannot destroy you. He can bruise your heel. But in Christ, you have crushed his head. Well, I've saved the best for last here. This crushing of the serpent's head is actually prophesied in the book of Revelation, right near the end. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It's at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, what we call the millennium. The passage tells us that Satan will be released for one final deception of the nations, and then his end will come. Here's what the verse says, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that's a crushing blow. You know, for me and Beth, this gives us hope and confidence. Even while going to Virginia Beach to attend the funeral of a dear friend, Some would say about our friend Rhonda that she lost her battle to cancer. That's how they would maybe describe her death. Lost her battle against cancer and liver disease. And yes, it's true. She died. And death comes because of the curse of sin. The curse that's on all of us as humanity. But here's the truth. She didn't lose She didn't lose the battle ultimately in Christ. She has won the victory over sin and death because of her relationship with him. Yes, the serpent struck her heel, but she has crushed the serpent's head. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and the serpent slayer, then you have that same assurance. You have the same assurance of victory in your life right now, the same assurance of ultimate victory in life forever, for eternity. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your serpent slayer, then today can be that day. It can be the day you discover freedom from the serpent and his power over you. And the day that you find complete and eternal victory in Jesus Christ. This morning, you're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And let me encourage you as you go to that table, as you take the bread and the cup, remember that it symbolizes your serpent slayer. Remember to praise him 
to thank the Lord Jesus for that victory that he won for you over sin and death. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for this passage. In this one simple, short verse, even in your uttering a sentence on your enemy, Satan, you have declared for us the victory. You have provided for us a way of escape from the enmity, from the conflict that surrounds us. Lord, thank you for that promise. Thank you for this sign that points us to the cross. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you are willing to go to that cross, to pay that price, to take our sin on your shoulders, to die for our sin, and then three days later to come out of that tomb in victory over death as well. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have this promise of being able to crush the enemy too because of what you did for us. Lord, I pray that we would live in that victory, that we would celebrate that victory, that we would understand that our life in you is life that is free, life that is purposeful, a life that can be fearless because you've won the victory. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our serpent slayer. Amen.